Hey, everybody. It is Friday. Not Friday Eve, but Friday, January 26th. <laughs> You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. We made it. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. And as The Cure say in their song, it's Friday, I'm in love. <laughs> and it's Friday, which means we do have some corrections, Mosh. Oh, is it not? Are we going to make this a weekly thing now? I know we have a couple <laughs> corrections today, but you're like, if it's Friday, it's corrections. So yes, we uh, we have gotten some feedback from some of you. And as we do here at Mo News, we don't take ourselves too seriously. And we believe uh, it is important when you guys call us out on mistakes we make on the pod to own up to them. I'll begin with one I got several notes about. You know, we try to make a point of getting all the pronounces down. I messed up this week with actor Killian Murphy. I called him Cillian because of the way it's spelled, the Irish spelling. So my apologies there for pronouncing his name incorrectly. He was nominated for an Oscar this week for his role in Oppenheimer. Okay, and I will apologize <laughs> for my off-the-cuff remark saying yes. that in Oregon Trail, you would randomly find out that your whole family died of syphilis when right. some people pointed out it was more like dysentery typhoid cholera those were the diseases that were killing people not syphilis <laughs> and so someone messaged you about it yeah. and then you posted on instagram which i reposted and i got the funniest comments back <laughs> by the way when we're talking about oregon trail we're talking about the, the game that was played in the late 80s early 90s floppy disk uh and you'd play it and then find out your family you know, in the game, in the video game, uh, died. So, Jill, what did the Mo News community tell you? Someone says, I heard that too and busted out laughing in my head. I thought, damn, Jill, what was your family doing on their way to Oregon? And then another person wrote, I absolutely loved this error. It brought laughter out loud belly laughter that triggered a conversation with teens who were listening and some great educational opportunities. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, they realized both syphilis and dysentery are undesirable. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Oregon Trail taught us a lot. I think you could also die of a, a snake bite. And yes. sometimes if you, if you had to ford the river, sometimes you would drown. <laughs> so there were many ways to go. You came up with a new one. And uh, we hear it at Mo News. You know, listen, accuracy is important to us. We promise you just the facts. And so there you have it. Okay, now to some accurate headlines. Texas. <laughs> Back to putting razor wire on its border with Mexico. Despite this week's Supreme Court ruling, what is the story there? And is there any political will left to get a deal to beef up border security and also send aid to Ukraine? To the Middle East, there are reports that the U.S. warned Iran of a terrorist threat before that January 3rd attack that killed dozens of people in the country. Yeah, we'll get into the backstory of why the CIA would warn Iran about a terror attack happening there. And there are some high-level talks set to resume in a few days about a potential hostage deal. We don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, but there are some high-level people meeting uh, in Europe from Israel, Qatar, Egypt, and the United States. Onto the economy here in the U.S., some new data shows uh, we've pulled off a soft landing and then some. And also, restaurant openings are back on the rise. Plus, America runs on Dunkin', but you'll be paying more for almond milk. Yeah, and a group of uh, folks taking Dunkin' to court saying that is discriminatory. Plus, it is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. What we are watching, reading, and eating. Okay, let's start with that battle at the border. Texas taking advantage of what appears to be a loophole in the recent Supreme Court ruling. 
and continuing to put up razor wire fencing on the U.S.-Mexico border. So we told you earlier this week, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, sided with the Biden administration and the federal government, affirming their right to remove razor wire that was installed along the Rio Grande Riverbank by Texas. However, the ruling doesn't specifically call for Texas to take any action in the matter. So authorities in Texas say they have the green light to continue to put up the fencing and federal border agents can take it down if they want. So this is just the latest battle, though, between Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, and the federal government, which he says is just not enforcing laws that would protect the border. There have been a record number of migrants streaming across the border in the past few months, simply overwhelming the system. Abbott launched Operation Lone Star to take greater control over immigration enforcement. And he argues that the U.S. Constitution empowers states with the right of self-defense in the event of a, quote, invasion. The Biden administration has accused Texas, though, of interfering with federal control over immigration and border security. Yeah, by the way, Abbott believes that the asylum seekers, the people coming across the border, he deems an invasion. This is among the many issues that uh, are being argued in court right now between the Biden administration and Texas. The bottom line is for more than 200 years, the federal government is in charge of our international borders. It's not a state matter. And that's what the White House has been saying. Texas saying, well, if you won't control the border or we don't believe you're controlling the border, we're going to control the border. And the uh, White House pushing back, well, it's going to be chaos if Arizona makes its own rules and California makes its own rules and Texas makes its own rules, yada, yada, yada. So ultimately here, this is a battle between not just Texas, but a number of Republican-led states are backing up Texas in these suits. Uh, DeSantis from Florida, uh, Youngkin, the governor of Virginia, a number of Republican governors coming out, backing up Texas here. And so in this matter, it seems almost silly, but literally Texas saying, you know, Supreme Court ruled you can take down the razor wire, but they didn't say we had to stop putting it up. So we're going to keep putting it up. You can keep taking it down and we'll just keep doing this until the final matter is ruled on. Because the Supreme Court decision this week was an emergency decision just related to the razor wire. The larger suit in regards to who has control here is still being adjudicated, is still being uh, deliberated on in lower courts right now in the U.S. Appeals Court. And so it remains to be seen what happens there. This hinges on the supremacy clause. Again, supremacy clause speaks to the federal government having ultimate rule over a number of matters over states. Now, how the Supreme Court rules on this is going to be interesting, Jill, because we mentioned this earlier in the week, that decision on the razor wire, that emergency decision related to the razor wire, was a 5-4 decision. The three liberals, plus John Roberts and Amy Coney Barrett, uh, making up the five, against four of the most conservative justices, Kavanaugh, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch. So why those four dissented, we don't know because it was an emergency ruling, so they didn't explain their decision. But that leads to some questions about how the court might ultimately rule on this matter, and that's something we're going to watch. Uh, so that's what's happening legally. Then politically, in Washington, immigration continues to be uh, hotly debated. Uh, we've told you about the ongoing conversation happening between Republicans and the White House and the holdup here, which now is centered around former President Trump the likely nominee now for the GOP, he's telling Republicans on Capitol Hill, do not give Biden a deal. I don't care what he makes a compromise on. I will give you a better deal. Do not give him a win before this election. So while Republicans at the same time say this is an urgent matter, they are saying, mm, I don't know uh, if we can't get everything we want from the White House, we're not going to make a deal at all. Now, that has frustrated Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate. 
He is no fan of Trump, by the way. They've had their issues. He had a closed-door meeting, and we found out details on this from Punchbowl News, the newsletter, which does a great job on Capitol Hill. He said that this has put the party in a quandary, uh, and he says, basically, the clock is running out here, guys. We can make a deal, but maybe we can't make a deal because of the pressure we're seeing Trump put on some of uh, our fellow Republicans. And McConnell apparently told the group in the Senate, we don't want to do anything to undermine him. So sort of understanding that they should be deferential to the likely party nominee, regardless about how some of them feel about it. So ultimately here, McConnell has been saying, listen, we got a great deal from Biden here. He is making compromises in immigration in order to pass the larger deal, which will involve aid to Ukraine. He gives us something on the border. We give aid to Israel. It's a whole comprehensive package. But with this holdup on the immigration front, it's unclear whether anything will get done here and whether any compromise is possible, even though it does appear both sides are willing to give But the Republicans here, at least a group of them, are not willing to compromise because they think they'll get something better with the next president. Okay, now to some news about the news business. Another wave of layoffs in the news industry. Business Insider saying that it's going to be cutting about 8% of its staff. The CEO, Barbara Pang, announcing the job cuts in a memo to staffers on Thursday saying, quote, we have already begun to refocus teams and invest in areas that drive outsized value for our core audience. Unfortunately, this also means we need to scale back in some areas of our organization. Back in 2015, Axel Springer, one of Europe's largest digital publishing conglomerates, bought Business Insider for about $343 bucks, And it comes as the LA Times set to cut their staff by over 20%. That includes about 115 journalists. That news broke this week as well. Sports Illustrated gave layoff notices to most of its staff and possibly all writers and editors last Friday. BuzzFeed News, Jezebel, Popular Science have all closed shop. So, most there was a lot of hope when it came to these digital startups, but a lot of them have folded in the past few years. And some billionaires wanted to get in on the action, thinking that maybe they could help save the news industry. And I think they're realizing that it's a bit harder than they expected. Making a billion dollars in other industries, easy compared to trying to figure out uh, journalism and building a business in the modern era. You know, you mentioned the LA Times there, Jill. They were among those bought by billionaires. Billionaire Patrick Sun-Chiong, who's working on a cure for cancer, which he once said feels easier than running a newspaper. He bought the LA (laughs) Times in 2018, poured about a billion dollars into the paper, and is uh, now, with these cutbacks, basically everything he invested the past six years uh, has been cut back. Though, you know, we should mention, Jill, He appointed his daughter and his wife into various roles at the newspaper. There's a lot of questions about the management, the politics of the LA Times here. That's not just the business, but who was in charge of various things. That said, as we talk about billionaires, Amazon founder Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post. Mark Benioff of Salesforce bought Time Magazine. Warren Buffett bought a whole bunch of local newspapers, all with the hopes of being able to support legacy media. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, who started his own financial business, which also has its TV and media arm, uh, is probably one of the only billionaires that has made it work, whereas the rest of these guys found out that fixing these companies, very challenging in this era. News outlets across the board have cut several thousand jobs in the past year. And that continues at a a pretty rapid pace, Jill. You mentioned some of the publications that have folded. Uh, Vice is in bankruptcy. National Geographic has fired all of its full-time writers. Condé Nast, which publishes magazines you're all familiar with, Bon Appetit, Wired, New Yorker, Vandy Fair, 
Uh, They're planning another round of layoffs. They're seeing employees there go on strike. The Washington Post conducted a whole round of buyouts in order to prevent uh, their own round of layoffs. The Washington Post, as I mentioned, bought by Jeff Bezos, of all people, um, trying to figure it out. So the big challenge here in the Beanie business is how to make money in an era where we're pretty much going on 20 plus years of the Internet now. And uh, a lot of these uh, institutions still trying to navigate how to replicate and grow revenue from the analog era. So it's something we talked about on the uh, premium Insta, actually, that, you know, back in the day, not so long ago, pre-Craigslist, the vast majority of revenue, a good portion of revenue for newspapers came from classified ads. You know, you had to sell your car, you had to find a job, you had to sell a house. You did that via the newspaper. Newspapers did very well off that section. Craigslist kills that. And they've been spending a couple decades trying to make up for that. Then on top of that, in the digital era, advertisers realizing we can be much more targeted going through Google, going through various cookies, going through Facebook uh, to reach consumers. We don't just need to put out an ad on page 17 of the A section of a newspaper, right, or on their website. So we can target better that way. So that's an issue. So overall ads going bye-bye. Classified ads went bye-bye. When it comes to live television, people are watching online, on social media, etc. So fewer people watching on TV means ad revenue is going down. So that's an issue for television. Then add to that that a bunch of these organizations gave away their news for free online for a long time. So when they started to put up paywalls again to have you subscribe, you're like, wait, why do I have to pay for news? Well, you always had to once pay for news. But for a few years there in the 2000s, you didn't have to pay for it anymore. So add that all together in the mix. Then on top of that, you know, various mistakes institutions have made, you know, we can talk about bias and mistakes. And certainly there is a share of blame to go around on the part of various organizations. And so people have lost trust. And so there's a whole bunch of stuff in the mix there that has led to this situation, Jill. And the most urgent one, I think, and we've talked about it on the pod before, is local news. One out of three newspapers have folded in the past 20 years. They were bought up by chains. They were bought up by hedge funds and finance folks who were sucking them dry for cash and money and basically folded a bunch of these newspapers. Uh, Some newspapers that are still around, by the way, might have one or two reporters left in the newsroom. I was in Ohio last year and discovered there was a a local paper for a pretty large town that had one reporter left, one. And so, you know, ultimately, even if you have a newspaper, a lot of it is filled with third-party content and ultimately not much in the way of local reporting on City Hall on pollution, on corruption, on things happening in your neighborhood. And that, I think, is one of the most urgent crises we face as a country. Mosh, I'm totally with you. And as somebody who worked my way up through local news, I I do really see the importance in it. When I was in Lansing, Michigan, we had a newsroom full of reporters who were just covering Lansing, which was a small city of 100,000 people. There's also the Lansing State Journal, which was a great newspaper that covered Lansing as well. And Lansing was the capital of Michigan. Uh, And we all had beats. And so we had contacts that we would call. You knew when something wasn't right. Obviously, there are politicians everywhere who are getting away with stuff, but fewer of them are going to get away with things. And there's going to be just less funny business with local journalists. And and I I believe you pointed this out on the Instagram account, the Jeffrey Epstein story, that was the Miami Herald that broke that story. That is a local newspaper that that did that kind of journalism. And it just points to the importance of it. Yeah, and you can point out those examples around the country. And at the same time, I hear people's frustration with the media, right? The media, big little M there, or big M, or whatever you want to say. But ultimately, 
our democracy is powered by information, good information, so we can make good decisions. And the fewer people providing good information out there creates potential concern, creates actual concern. There are 200 plus counties in America now that don't have any publications covering them anymore. We heard from people on Instagram who say that my closest newspaper uh, is located 150 miles away uh, in some of these places. So ultimately, we have seen some digital startups. There's a variety of discussions happening on a government level. There's policymakers. Actually, one of the original parts of the Build Back Better Biden plan was going to pump a couple hundred million dollars to uh, help cultivate local media that ultimately was cut as they cut stuff from that bill. But it's still a discussion at the state level, at the federal level. It's one of the reasons why uh, our listeners in Canada aren't able to see news right now on social media because there's a fight happening between the Canadian government and Google and Facebook to help pay for local news. It's been a debate had in Australia. And then you have philanthropists. We talked about these billionaires, but there are nonprofits out there that want to pump more money into the system in order to uh, create a more robust local media environment in particular. All right, we'll take a quick break here to thank one of our big sponsors here at Mo News, Athletic Greens AG1. We're always talking about health trends, food trends here on the podcast, and it's hard to get all your nutrients every day. Uh, We're all busy with work, kids, everything else going on in our lives. One way to get all the important ingredients is Athletic Greens AG1 powder. I first tried it more than a year ago. I was having trouble getting all of my nutrients and vitamins. It's just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It's easy. It's quick. It lets you get on with your day knowing that you've gotten 75 plus important ingredients, tons of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics to support digestion gut health. And what's great right now is they're offering the Mo News community that with your first purchase of AG1, they're giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D, five free travel packs of AG1. You can visit drinkag1.com slash Mo News. This is drinkag, the number one, dot com slash Mo News to take advantage of the offer and to really take ownership of your health. Okay, time now for the speed read from NBC News. Former President Trump took the witness stand in a federal courthouse in New York City Thursday. He testified for just under five minutes after clashing with the judge in the damages trial for E. Jean Carroll's defamation case against him. So he was restricted from disputing that he had sexually abused and defamed Carroll since he was already found liable for sexual assault and defamation. This trial is only about the penalty. So he was limited in what he could say, but he still called Carol's accusation false, to which the judge ordered that stricken from the record. The former president and GOP frontrunner ultimately only asked a couple of questions. He was asked if he stood by his claims in a 2022 deposition where he called Carol's allegations a hoax and a con job, to which Trump said 100 percent yes. He was also asked if he ever instructed anyone to hurt Carol. He testified No, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly, the presidency, to which the judge ordered everything after the word no, stricken as well. His defense rested after the brief testimony and closing arguments are scheduled for today. Yeah. So as you said, Jill, this is just about the penalty, how much the penalty is, because he was found liable for sexually abusing Carol, an advice columnist back in the 1990s in a New York department store, and then continually and repeatedly damaging her reputation through denials and insults uh, over the course of the past few years. He was already ordered to pay $5 million. This is more because he kept uh, allegedly defaming her here. So he could face between 7 and $12 million in additional uh, damages to repair her reputation. Uh, and as you noted in his testimony, the judge tried to be very precise in what he could be asked, but Trump continued to manage 
to say extra things. In fact, in the pre-trial, Trump said, I don't know who this woman is. I've never met this woman. The judge warned him, keep your voice down. The jury's not in here yet. And I'm here to repeat to you, please do not say these things. You're interrupting. You can't say that because you've already been found liable. This is just about the penalty. Trump continues to claim he's never met her. The jury in the previous case did not seem to buy that, including in a previous deposition where he claimed that Carol was not his type. Trump was shown an old picture of him and Carol standing together at an event and was asked to point out, oh, who are these people in the picture? He mistook the woman next to him for Marla Maples, his ex-wife. He was then told by the uh, lawyers, that's E. Jean Carroll. He said, oh, the picture is blurry. So that was one of the issues he faced in trial number one that actually dealt with the liability there. So uh, Jill, you know, we thought it's notable here just because, again, he's the GOP front runner. He's facing these cases. And this is one of the arguments his opponents, including Nikki Haley, have made that he continues to bring distractions and potential legal issues here. Uh, And so she's been warning Republicans, maybe we shouldn't be nominating him. But so far, it appears Republicans say, you know, we don't believe these trials are legitimate. And we're going to proceed, at least the majority of them so far in the first two states, with making him our nominee. Okay, this from the Wall Street Journal. The U.S. secretly warned Iran that ISIS was preparing to carry out the terrorist attack early this month that killed more than 80 people in a pair of coordinated suicide bombings. The confidential alert came after the U.S. acquired intelligence that the ISIS affiliate in Afghanistan known as ISIS-K was plotting to attack Iran. American officials say that the information that they passed to Iran was specific enough about the location and sufficiently timed that it could have proved useful to Tehran in thwarting the attack on January 3rd, or at the very least mitigating the casualty toll. However, Iran failed to prevent the suicide bombing, which targeted a crowd that was commemorating the anniversary of the death of Qassam Soleimani, the commander of the Islamic Revolutionary um, Guard, the Quds Force. Despite the American warnings, some Iranian hardliners have suggested that Islamic State perpetrators were linked to the U.S. and Israel. Yeah, a few of them saying ISIS reports to America and Israel, to which the U.S. and Israel saying, what are you talking about? The U.S. officials right now are declining to say what channels were used to warn Iran or divulge details here. Remember, the U.S. does not have an official diplomatic relationship with Iran, so they could have used a variety of mechanisms here, whether through the Qataris, through the Iraqis, through another country that has a relationship with Iran One American official telling the journal that the Iranians did not respond to the U.S. about the warning, though it is leading to a question many of you have asked over on Instagram. Wait, the U.S. is warning Iran about a terror attack inside its country? What's up with that? Well, the U.S. intelligence community has what's known as a duty to warn, which requires spy agencies to warn intended victims, whether they're U.S. citizens or not if they're the target of a terrorist attack. Now, there are exceptions if the victims themselves, the attended victims, are terrorists or criminals themselves. In this case, they picked up a warning that ISIS, which, by the way, ISIS is Sunni, Iran is Shiite. ISIS is the most extreme of the extreme of the extreme ideologically when it comes to their uh, violent interpretation of the Quran. So for ISIS, the Taliban is too soft. For ISIS, Iran is too soft. So they will bomb internally other Muslims, which is particularly controversial in the region. So this was not the first ISIS attack. The U.S. picked up uh, info here, gave it to Iran, the idea being potentially, again, they're not saying too much about this, that they wanted to make sure Iran knew that the U.S. was not involved in something coming up and potentially try to extend an olive branch of sorts to Iran at a time where tensions are high, saying, hey, we're looking out for your people, even though you're also bombing U.S. bases in Iraq, in Syria, and supporting the Houthis right now. So 
if you thought the Middle East was complicated, here's an extra complication today. And in the enemy of your enemy is my friend construct, the U.S. warning Iran about ISIS. Moshe was one of those headlines that you're like, wait, what? <laughs> and then you read it again and you're like, okay. And then add to that, ISIS, you know, is the Islamic State. Iran goes by Islamic Republic. So you got to read that twice. So anyway, needless to say, I, I hope that clarified it for everybody. And then this was ISIS-K. Just, just ISIS-K. to throw in another, you know, another An letter. affiliate of ISIS. ISIS Khorasan, of course. All right, from Axios, in the next few days, a big meeting on the books about a potential deal to release the remaining hostages held by Hamas. CIA Director Bill Burns is expected to travel to Europe to meet with the head of Israel's Mossad, Egypt's intelligence chiefs, and the Qatari prime minister. Israel has offered a two-month pause in fighting and the release of more Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails in exchange for the release of all the hostages, about 130 men, women, and children. Hamas has reportedly said no to that, but Axios's Barack Ravid reports that Israeli officials hope this upcoming meeting will encourage both Qatari and Egyptian mediators to put more pressure on Hamas. A senior Israeli official who was directly involved in the talks said that the impression is that there is a willingness on all sides to get a deal and momentum has been created. But I'm also seeing these reports in Israeli media that Hamas is still playing some hardball here. They've put out there that they're looking for a two-week ceasefire before any hostages are released, two months-long ceasefires between each stage of a release, hundreds of Palestinian prisoners for every one Israeli soldier released, um, among a few demands that apparently are circulating out there. So we'll see what comes of these talks as Burns uh, goes. Remember, Burns was heavily involved in that first round back in November that led to the release of about 100 hostages in exchange for just over 300 prisoners. And it does come, though, as tensions are high right now between Israel and the Qataris. The Qataris, remember, Qatar is the home to some Hamas leaders. They also have helped fund Hamas through the years. But with the permission of the Israelis who knew that Qatar basically kept the Gaza economy afloat. Anyway, long story short, the prime minister of Israel telling a group behind closed doors that Qatar is problematic. Qatar taking offense to those words, saying, I hope you didn't say that, uh, Israel, because we're helping you here. But Netanyahu is particularly mad that Qatar has all this influence and has been taking so long. Remember, it's been nearly two months now um, since the last hostage exchange. So the Qataris saying the Israelis are undermining this. The Israelis saying we're frustrated and we need to put more pressure on you. There was a protest inside the Qatari embassy in D.C. this week that included a couple members of Congress. So we've thrown a lot at you in the past couple of weeks in terms of proposals. And uh, the hope is that it's gone from proposal to final stage negotiation. We'll see what uh, next week brings. Now to the economy here in the U.S. From the New York Times, the U.S. economy continuing to grow at a healthy pace at the end of 2023, capping a year in which unemployment remained low, inflation cooled, and a widely predicted recession never happened. On Thursday, the Commerce Department said the GDP grew at 3.3% in the fourth quarter, down a bit from the third quarter, but easily beating expectations. And just more evidence that this economic recovery is on solid footing. We should note there's been a record roll for the stock market the past few days. Uh, They love this data. What is GDP? Basically economic growth for the country. So the country's economy is growing here. uh, And it appears we've gotten through sky high inflation without putting ourselves into a recession. That's the soft landing that has been discussed for a while. Uh, A senior economist from the bank UBS telling the New York Times, it's hard to imagine how things could look better for a soft landing. Looking back at last year, the combination of growth and inflation that we had was not considered in the realm of possibility by most people. To have such strong growth 
low unemployment, and to have inflation coming down that quickly. Even the optimists weren't that optimistic. Jill, as we uh, have discussed, it's sort of like weather. While the underlying temperature appears to be good, the heat index or the wind chill here still having an impact, I guess, the economic equivalent of the inflation effect from the past two years, uh, people still feel uh, and are experiencing high prices, even as they achieve the soft landing, even though unemployment remained low, even though inflation is coming back to where it was. But uh, the last couple of years have had an impact here. And so I think that continues to put a strain on how people feel about the economy. Are you trying to get me riled up about the supermarket prices, Mo? Jill, I, 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 I hope you don't have to go to the grocery store this weekend. I, I hope you're loaded for a little bit. Okay, speaking of food from Axios, the restaurant industry is showing signs of life after a brutal stretch brought on by the pandemic. Nearly 54,000 restaurants opened their doors last year, up 10% from 2022 based on new Yelp listings. That figure up 2% from 2019, which means there's been a slight increase in openings compared to pre-pandemic times. Some of the fastest growing restaurant categories include dessert shops, up 66% in 2023. Creperies up 63%, and hot pot joints up 53%, which is a method of cooking associated with Chinese food or Korean food. A few other interesting data points. African restaurants up 65% when compared with 2019. Peruvian restaurants increased 28%. Officials at Yelp say even through economic challenges, restaurant owners are staying responsive to shifts in consumer preferences like the increasing demand for earlier reservation times and higher-end experiences. Yeah, it's been a very challenging time for restaurants. I'm sure many of you either know somebody who works in them or have uh, heard stories. But ultimately here, it appears that the upside here is that this has created new space for new growth in a changed environment, and restaurants are adapting to this new world. At the same time, it's not all good news for restaurants. In a poll conducted last fall by the Restaurant Association down in Washington, D.C., 75% of 300 establishments surveyed reported being less profitable than before the pandemic. Nearly all of them have had to raise prices. They say inflation and labor costs are even outpacing those price increases, as well as the cost of high food, rent, uh, etc. So uh, these restaurants still facing some headwinds, despite that headline. And from ABC News, Dunkin' Donuts facing a new lawsuit from lactose intolerant coffee drinkers who claim that it's discriminatory to be charging extra for non-dairy milk alternatives like soy, almond or oat. The 10 plaintiffs say that they paid anywhere from 50 cents to two dollars and 15 cents extra for the alternatives between 2018 and 2023. In California, New York, Texas, Colorado, Massachusetts, and Hawaii, the plaintiffs all suffer from lactose intolerance and milk allergies, making it medically necessary for them to, quote, avoid consuming drinks that contain milk. The lawsuit claims that because lactose intolerance and milk allergies are both considered disabilities, Duncan's conduct, they say, violates the Americans with Disabilities Act, as well as state anti-discrimination laws where the respective customers purchased their beverages. So this suit was filed in U.S. District Court and federal court out there in Northern California. They're seeking at least $5 million in damages. Uh, And you mentioned there, Jill, the Americans with Disabilities Act. Ultimately, what they're arguing is that Duncan's conduct here violates the ADA because the ADA states that public entities are required to make reasonable modifications to policies or practices when it's necessary for an individual with a disability to afford goods and services. As cited in the lawsuit, the ADA also states that that public accommodation may not impose a surcharge 
on an individual with a disability. And that's what they're arguing here, that lactose intolerance is a disability. And Duncan is required to provide them with an alternative without charging them extra. It is similar to a class action lawsuit that that same law firm that represents these clients filed against Starbucks in 2022. Starbucks filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit. That's still pending. Duncan has a while to respond right now till March 4th on this suit. Jill, I should note, you know, we've seen a couple of these examples where protesters have shown up at uh, coffee places and glued their hands. I think it was a Starbucks where they glued their hands to the counter to protest this surcharge. When it comes to milk, you know, clearly these franchises and stores are probably buying wholesale with access only to retail numbers. Lauren on our team ran the numbers here. We looked at Walmart, uh, how much milk costs and took it down to a dollar per ounce. Ultimately, regular milk, if you, again, we're paying retail here at Walmart, costs about three cents per ounce based on what we saw over at walmart.com. Organic milk, five cents per ounce. Almond, about five cents per ounce. Oat, at about eight cents an ounce. Uh, And so it does appear, at least in the case of oat milk, that that's about double the price on a per ounce basis retail from regular milk. Again, we'll see what we learn from this lawsuit, but it's an interesting uh, case here based on what the ADA says. All right, Motion is Friday. Cheers to the freaking weekend. Time for what we are watching, reading, and eating. I'll let you kick it off. What are you watching? Dun 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 dun. <laughs> AFC NFC Championships games on Sunday. You have the Chiefs versus the Ravens. So I'm sure that'll feature a lot of Taylor Swift, uh, Jill on Sunday. And then we'll see the Lions versus the 49ers. The Chiefs and the Ravens have had a lot of success in the past couple of decades. The Chiefs in particular, they're almost making the Super Bowl an annual visit on the NFC side. The Lions have never made it to a Super Bowl. They're the only NFC team that has never made it. So uh, despite the fact that I grew up a Chicago Bears fan and the Lions were rivals, sort of rooting for them here because, you know, it's history. Jill, what are you going to be watching this weekend? So I'm going to be rewatching The Wire, or at the very least, starting to rewatch The Wire say, from season that'd be, one. That'd be a very aggressive weekend, Jill, watching The Whole Wire in a weekend. If I didn't have kids, I would totally be down. <laughs> <laughs> we just did that survey about the best HBO shows of shows all of time. Shows of all time, yeah. And I realized how much I love The Wire. I actually think The Wire is my number one pick. I believe our top four were The Sopranos, Sex in the City, Game of Thrones, and The Wire. Which one wound up winning? Well, Game of Thrones won the Instagram survey, but then a whole bunch of Gen Xers and elder millennials were like, well, the kids these days haven't watched The Wire. So they feel that if everyone actually had to watch all the series, that The Wire would have beaten out Game of Thrones. Especially since a lot of people are upset about how Game of Thrones ended. And if there is anybody out there who has not watched The Wire yet, if you are at all interested in local news and and newsrooms and how they operate, I forget which season it is, but maybe the second season or the third season is based on the local paper there. So I highly recommend watching it. All right, what are you reading? I'm going to be reading The Little Liar. It is a new novel by Mitch Albom. It is about hope and forgiveness that moves from a coastal Greek city during World War II to America in the golden age of Hollywood as the intertwined lives of three young survivors are forever changed by the perils of deception and the grace of redemption. So that's the description that I just grabbed. uh, (laughs) I was going to say, very eloquent. I didn't write that myself. But I don't think that I've ever read a Mitch Album book that has not made me sob at points. And I'm guessing that this one is going to be no different. 
The book came out in November, but album is going to be coming to my area to talk about it. And I am planning to go to that. So I want to read the book beforehand. uh, And I'm very excited. Invite him on the pod. We'd love to have Mitch album on the podcast. Done. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Bosch, what are you reading? A book by a friend of mine, Brian Levinson. He is a uh, executive performance coach. He works with professional athletes and CEOs. The book is called Shift Your Mind. And it talks about some simple mental shifts that you can do to elevate your preparation, your performance in the workplace, but also in your personal life. So looking forward to getting around to this. I'll be on uh, Levinson's podcast soon as well. Okay, Mosh, what are you eating this weekend? Jill, Thai food. We're on a kick here in Brooklyn. Uh, it's always a debate between pad Thai and pad siu, pad siu being that like wider flat noodle, but uh, I'm into it right now. What are you eating this weekend? Family style Italian from a local restaurant around here called La Parma. Uh, pretty well known, been around for decades. And it is the request of my brother, whose birthday we are going to be celebrating this weekend. Happy birthday, Scott. All right. And with that, we want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. We'll help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Yeah. And thanks to all of you who have joined uh, Mo News Premium for extra content. We have an extra podcast out today with Elisa Pressman. She is a developmental psychologist. Um, all about parenting and what the latest science says on everything from discipline to praise, actually the dangers of overpraising your kids. So fascinating conversation um, on all levels. We also talk about how to talk to them about news, how to deal with technology and uh, devices, etc. And what I like about her new book, and I think you'll get a lot out of the conversation, is she's not here to preach anything, but just give you a sense of where the latest science is and where the latest uh, studies are on various subjects. So check that out over on the Mo News Premium pod to get access to that. Join Mo News Premium, mo.news slash premium. Okay, I definitely need to listen to that because I think I perhaps give my daughter too much praise. But... Not to worry, Jill, <laughs> and, but lucky for you, you're a Mo News Premium member, so you got access. I sure am. I'm an OG. <laughs> um, all right, everybody, have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.